Hello, hello, and welcome to Elated, the podcast. I'm Arielle, and I care about your mental health. Over the last few years, I've built a business with a mission to destigmatize the conversation surrounding mental health maintenance, using food as a starting point. I found that educating people on how our gut-brain connection, and don't worry, I'll explain what that is, influences our mood, feelings, cognitive abilities, and so much more, created a comfortable space to talk about what it means to take care. My goal has always been for people to talk about their emotional health the same way we talk about physical health. And in this time and space, I think we can all agree on how important this is. Every week, I'll be sharing conversations with friends and professionals whose expertise is in a space that contributes to our mental well-being. I'll be asking for their take and tips on topics we all think about, but few of us talk about. Whether it's mental health and money, motherhood, meditation, or anything really, I'm committed to throwing out the taboo to get the conversation going. So I'm really excited you're here. And let's get started. Today's conversation is with Monica Oslander Moreno, the registered dietitian of the Miami Marlins and founder of Essence Nutrition, a private practice here in Miami. Together, we talk about nutrition's role in mental health, as well as how you can navigate the health space right now and who exactly you should be listening to for advice. All right, let's hear what she has to say. So I wanted to come right out of the gate and emphasize the fact that you're a dietitian because I think it's vitally important for people to understand that you went through a heck of a lot of schooling and you dedicated a lot of time to attain your title. So while there are so many people out there claiming to be experts right now, really we need to know who actually knows their stuff and who doesn't. So would you mind just briefly for people who don't know uh, stating what exactly distinguishes a dietitian? Sure. Um, so a registered dietitian title is given to those who have completed a, an accredited program um, in dietetics and nutrition. Right now, um, they just change it. So you have to have a master's degree. It wasn't that way before. Um, so now you must have completed a master's of science in dietetics and nutrition from an accredited program. After that is done, um, you have to, well, within that program, you have to do a thesis, which is really a, a terrible thing. Um, the fun part is you match into kind of like a residency, what doctors do. It's called an internship for some reason. And it's about a year of supervised practice with, um, under other dietitians. Then you sit for a national board exam and then you have to apply within your state for licensure. So it's a fair amount of, of education and on-hand training and it's a big deal. And we're very proud and protective of our title. Um, and legally, we are actually the only ones uh, besides, you know, physicians and PAs and nurse practitioners who are allowed to dispense nutrition advice as it relates to medical conditions. Thank you for going to school as long as you did, because I think it is important for people to realize exactly what you said. You, along with nurse practitioners and doctors, are the ones that can actually dispense nutrition advice when it pertains to a medical condition and it's a vitally important service. I mean, it's it's a safety measure. And thank you. I mean, you're welcome. My pleasure for going to school. It's really to protect the consumer. The, the issue is that, in my opinion, the consumer is just unfortunately ignorant about, you know, who whom to trust with nutrition. Um, so they put their trust in any, in any Tom, Dick, or Harry. And unfortunately, there's no serious 
um, fear from these charlatans about what's going to happen to them. And a lot of them, you know, carry on their, their business, um, you know, without fear of, of, of persecution or prosecution in any, in any way, um, which is unfortunate for us, us real, you know, real, real practitioners who are doing everything to keep everybody safe because yes. Okay. Dietitians are the only ones who can work with people who have any kind of disease condition, but a headache is, is a disease condition. You know, mm-hmm. something is something you might think is, oh, benign. And, oh, my friend told me, my trainer told me about it. It's just for, you know, hormones or cramps or something. Those are, you know, the, we, the reason we take so much physiology and biochemistry is to understand the complex nature of the human body. And we can then make those clinical decisions safely for you. It's not just, oh, you know, it, it, it's one thing for someone to give education, like strawberries are good for you. They have vitamin C. You're allowed to do that. That's fine. <laughs> Teachers, you know, in high school can teach about that. You're not allowed to say, okay, you have headaches or you have menopause. You should eat this. That is not kosher. So thank you for the respect. Of course. And I think what I love about working with you and speaking with you is that you take the science seriously and you're up to date on the science and everything you do is backed by science. But at the same time, I think- Yeah, of course. And I think an important distinction, though, is that you're not rigid in your science. You really do honor the uniqueness of every body uh, throughout everything that you do. And I think people forget that people in your position as dietitians do play a huge role in a person's mental health. And so understanding the science, but also being flexible enough to honor the individual puts you kind of like in a make or break position where you could either be chipping away at someone's self-esteem or being the person that champions them. And do you agree that you actually, like there's a lot of psychology that goes into what you do. I'd say it's actually more psychology than physiology um, Mm -hmm. in the realm of of my private practice, Mm -hmm. in fact. Um, And yes, we, we revere science, but you are not a lab rat. And, you know, why can't you just tell Miss Ariel, well, for heaven's sake, eat some vegetables. Like that's not, you know, appropriate. So that's where the psychology comes into play. And the interpretation of clinical data is one thing, bravo for anyone who can read a study, read literature, understand science, but to apply it to a human that is not, that is a scientific being with an artistic mind is the art of medicine, is the art of of healthcare. So our dietitians uniquely, you know, rely on science as their bed, but, you know, rise from the bed into the bedroom and walk around with the, the very precious sector of, of the art of healthcare in our, in our, in our pockets. And that's what we apply and honor for people. And we're like you said, yes, we're not rigid where we are always optimizing and pursuing health and minimizing any kind of harm or risk and potentially capitalizing on any kind of health benefit. Right. Because I think a huge part of having someone understand what it means to eat, to support the function of their body is not making someone feel wrong or stupid, but rather leading more with, uh, did you know this? Or can I inform you about that? Or have you heard about this? Those types of conversations is what lets people reach the conclusions that are comfortable for them, obviously with the guidance of a professional. But I think that's called motivational interviewing, of course, as you know, and we do that, you know, we part of our philosophy, which is health at every size, is you have the right to pursue health in a way that is joyous and meaningful to you. I will will smother you with science if you ask me, 
but you might take that and say, it sounds great. Not for me. For me, this is the, what I'm going to eat and how I'm going to move. And that's my definition of health. And, and I can, you know, agree or disagree with that. You're paying me. So, you know, it's, it's up to you. Right, right. But with, honestly, with how many quacks and pseudoscientists there are out there, is there an easy way for someone to immediately, like right off the bat, distinguish? Because maybe not everyone has the uh, ability to get the best of the best. So when you have to I compromise- mean, an RD is a good place to start, but I'm not going to tell you that all RDs are, are wonderful practitioners and you should right. trust them. Some RDs are very steeped in diet culture and unfortunately just are not woke enough, you know, or, or they're, they're, they're not a great practitioner. There's bad lawyers, bad doctors, bad dog groomers. There's, you know, there's a whole spectrum when it comes to humans. Right. Is so, there something um, that someone you know, can say to, to an RD or like a way of like not interviewing because no one wants that kind of person, but is there something where someone can <laughs> implement something to protect themselves, to know that they're getting a genuine person with their best interest in mind? Well, when you're doing your research on whom to hire or whom to listen or follow, or even something innocuous is following on Instagram, you know, you, when you peep their writing or their, their musings or their website, you know, the RD credential is a really great start. And then, you know, from there, you want to look for how is this person presenting themselves? Are they presenting themselves in a stigmatizing way? You know, are they, are they making promises? of weight loss and everlasting health? Or are they saying, this is me. These are my credentials. This is how I help people. You know, I'm excited to help you in a joyous, non-stigmatizing yet scientific way. You know, if someone is set selling you weight loss or, you know, it's, it seems too good to be true. Actually just today, someone mentioned to me, Oh, do you know this dietitian? And I said, no, I've never heard of her. So I went on her website and her Instagram and it was all such bogus about I live so healthily using food as medicine. No, food is not medicine. Have you ever taken medicine? You know, and oh, hashtag weight loss journey, like weight loss. I help you lose weight so you're healthy. Nope, that's going to be a no for me, bro. And I said to my friend, I've, I've checked her out and I don't think she's a very good dietitian at all. And I would never send her anyone and I would never put my faith and confidence in her. So, you know, does, does the message seem real? Does it resonate with you? Does it, is it not weight focused? Is it, you know, it, it, but does it seem scientific, you know, and you got to make your, we have to trust consumers a little bit. Right. Well, you touched on two things that I think are really important to elaborate on. And I'm going to go with, with the food is medicine first. So with so many people now understanding what it means to actually eat to support your body with so many people now finally caring about what they put in their body. And now with, you know, so many books being written, eat to beat depression, you know, this type of cleanse and, you know, right here next to me, I have on my bookshelf, the uh, cleanse to heal book. So what would you say is the actual proper balance between food as food and food as mm, not medicine, but as you know, do you believe well, medicinal? Yeah, but do do you believe that food can be used to support people with ADD, ADHD, dementia? Yes. So yes. what what is food the balance is there? And medi- food is support. Food is mediating. So when I am 
you know, let's say when I used to have private Pilates and somewhat my teacher, when I let people touch me <laughs> before <laughs> the pandemic and my teacher was supporting me, me making sure I wasn't going to fall off the foam roller. I was doing all of the work. She was just there to support, right. To make sure I didn't, but her support was important because what, even her two hands on that side made sure I didn't fall off the foam roller. Okay. So food is incredible. It is magic. I became a dietitian because I was, I was stupefied by the fact that like food is magic. Truly food does not cure disease. Okay. Mm -hmm. And it, in, in most respects, one food does not cause a disease. So food is a mediator. I always say it's like a divorce where if, if there's going to be a divorce, it could be a horrible drawn out thing, or it can be an amiable, amenable, you know, process, but it's a divorce. Food is the mediator. Food is the one that says we're either going to make this real pleasant or real terrible. So food can swing that pendulum either way. And yes, we have gajillions, oodles of scientific data and studies on food and its properties and certain nutrients and phytonutrients that support it. That does not mean that if you have cancer and you eat blueberries, you are going to heal faster. We can't boil it down. We can't make it simplistic. There's a huge element of synergy, which people ignore when they take supplements. Synergy is the concept of one plus one is three. You know, the sum of the parts being bigger than the whole, uh, or sorry, smaller than the whole. I'm not sure how it works. Uh, mom brain. In essence, what I'm trying to say is I believe in the power of food. I respect it as scientific. It can be medicinal, but it is certainly not medicine. And we have to realize where food ends and mental health and stress relief and sleep and movement and pharmaceuticals begin. Right. And right. luck and miracles and genetics and all of these other things. But so what are and, uh, and dogs? <laughs> For you then, what is the intersection between nutrition and mental health? Um, so there's a couple of answers. So, so we have our science, we have the science between, you know, the, the hormones and, and um, stress hormones and sleep hormones and me metabolic hormones like insulin and ghrelin and leptin and cortisol and adiponectin and melatonin and all those things that happen when we sleep and when we relax. Oh, and serotonin. We have all the research there. We have the research of the microbiome in sleep. We have, you know, the research that, you know, when you don't sleep well, your microbiome suffers. And when you don't sleep well, then you crave, you know, high density foods and your my microbiome suffers. And there's a whole feedback loop between the hormones and the microbiome and the neurotransmitters, right? It's amazing. Um, and then of course we have research that supports inflammation. Then we have the, the element, I actually give a, a lecture on sleep. So I'm really into this. So sorry you asked. Um, <laughs> we have the element of sleep that deals with like the more functional and practical of what should you eat, you know, before bed, something, you know, certain nutrients can help induce sleep. Eating at certain times of the day can help with sleep. Well, you know, the whole thing about caffeine and hydration. I encourage you to listen to this webinar. I actually think it's posted on my website. Um, and then we have, you know, when it comes to sleep, stress, depression, mental health conditions, you are not going to eat yourself undepressed from eating a lot of fish because of omega-3s. You are not going to eat yourself undepressed or unanxious because of, you know, canned salmon because of vitamin D or, you know, egg yolks and cod liver and, and think beef liver and things that have vitamin D. Not going to happen. Again, you can support your mental health with food and nutrients and certain patterns of eating and moving and sleeping. And I thoroughly believe that. And I see it every single day. I just had a client who it like was so evident that her, her sleep and stress were, were, were completely interrelated and, and being impeded by her intake and vice versa. But like I said, it's not like eat, eat pineapple and you won't get a bruise because of bromelain, you know, it's, it just does not work like that. And it really has to be taken at, at a macro large level.
But of course, you would agree that it is uh, a smart first step to assess how you're eating, how what you're eating is affecting your life and your mental health and to make appropriate adjustments. But you're just advocating that it's one part out of, you know, a plethora of things that work together synergistically to help your mental health. And some of that may be pharmaceuticals or therapy or exercise or other things outside of nutrition, but nutrition does play a pivotal role. 1000%. So when we look at people's med lists, medication lists, and we say, okay, oh, I see there's an SSRI, I see there's, you know, Ativan, I see there's a benzodiazepine, something like that. I'm wondering it, it, like, for example, I'll, I'll take uh, uh, someone, for example, I, I see on their med list Ativan and they're taking it every single night. And that's a huge flag for me. Like, you know, you shouldn't have to take a benzo every single night to sleep. Right. Mm-hmm. So that is a, a, a mental health need to speak to the psychiatrist, the psychologist problem. But we, that tells me as the practitioner, there's a significant issue with anxiety or depression and sleep. And I need to examine very closely the behaviors and the foods, both of them that are happening before, or, you know, when they wake up or in the middle of the night, the, the peri bed to anti bedtime routine and, and, and dig into that a little deeper. But what I also think a few people talk about is the onus on the individual when they may be dealing with disordered sleep or whatever else they're facing to have the energy to even address nutrition at all. You know, how how do you help someone who is in the depths of depression or is running on one hour of sleep a night? How do you get them to even muster the energy to address what they're eating? What is 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 there an easy first step? What is a tip that that you could give people just so that they can begin this journey to see how what they're consuming may be affecting other aspects of their life? Well, you know, we see this this is a real life scenario. So we right. do like we refer over 90% of our clients to therapists with whom, not just any old therapist, we have like very trusted sources that specialize in certain, you know, uh, strata of the population and certain demographics. So, you know, if you're not in therapy, we actually have people sign a clause that's like, if we recommend a therapist for you and you don't go, I'm sorry, but you can't continue to be an essence nutrition client. Like that's how seriously we take it. Mm -hmm. Um, Of course, you know, sometimes psychiatry is is necessary as well. Mm -hmm. Um, And and we have uh, two dietitians on staff who have um, very intense eating, inpatient eating disorder um, training and addiction training. So they, they um, you know, are, are very, very astute and very great with that. But, you know, if you're one, if you're a client, you're in therapy, you're, you know, getting your, your psychi- psychiatric life, you know, together, the first step is always the analysis. And that's the scientific method, which is what is going on here, the assessment of what is the baseline. So I would take a step back and I urge people to, you know, really become serious and non-judgmental and, and, and commit to the process of analysis, which is, which is what is going on day to day to day to day, the patterns that make us who we are basically. So if you get mad once, are you an angry person? No. But if you find that it's happening every single day, you're an angry person. So, so, you know, we, we have people log their meals with photos and descriptions, not calories, not steps. It's literally what time did I eat? how much of it and who, what, where, when, why, how did I feel before? How did I feel after? And once you do that for a couple of weeks with us and we give you feedback every day, patterns start to emerge. With respect to mental health, you know, patterns start to emerge around 
I, oh, I've noticed that I, I fast all day and then I binge at night because I'm stressed or I'm not eating enough because I'm so stressed for work and I don't have time to create my breakfast and I'm binging at night and then I'm not sleeping well because I eat too much at night and my reflux and certain, you know, physiological slash psychological patterns emerge. So I would urge people the first step is, is analysis and getting help, you know, seeing a therapist you know, as either whether it's a PsyD, an LMHC, an L, what, whomever, a licensed, you know, mental health therapist does not mean that you're crazy that there's something wrong with you. In fact, it means everybody else is crazy and there's something wrong with them because <laughs> to, it's a mental massage. It's someone to really clarify what is going on in your life in all aspects, including food, especially when, you know, we have these, these amazing psychologists who specialize in, in food, mood, mental health, sleep, et cetera, because food is something you make like 40 food or decisions a day, maybe even more. So if you tell me that has nothing to do with mental health and eating is not emotional, all eating is emotional. So I just wrote that for my, my February, 2021 newsletter preview. Um, so that's my, my two cents to answer your question. No, that's, that's perfect. And I, and I agree with what you said. And I think you also mentioned something that I know is a whole conversation on its own, but it's important to go back to, which is that food should not be seen as calories. Food should be considered whole foods. And could you just, is there like one sentence that you could wrap up why we shouldn't be so calorie focused? What when your practice, what do you see as the detriment um, to people who are focused so strictly on caloric intake and calorie count? Well, we we send them a, a hefty amount of articles about how calorie counting is just bad science. It's mm -hmm. it's it's fatal. Um, mm -hmm. It doesn't make sense with respect to food. It was not never developed for food. Um, it was it was for chemistry. It was developed, I think, in 1843. It's old and antiquated and it doesn't work. We don't we now know that the predictive equations are not predictive really at all, um, you know, with respect to calories and, and any kind of equations you can do. Um, you know, there's one machine that can measure your basal metabolic rate. Um, that's not true. There's a couple ways of doing it with, with some margin of error. We use those for athletes and that's really mostly just to like scare them into doing what we want because there's so many financial stakes at, at bay for them. And that just tells that tells us this is the amount of calories your your body burns if you were actually just like sleeping all the live long day. It does not and that and that doesn't really help you decide what foods to choose because calories and avocados are different from calories of cake and calories of, of strawberries. So the calorie is a unit of quantity. It is not a use, unit of quality. It is a unit I frankly don't usually quite much care about. Um, unless I'm, you know, there's certain pediatric cases or, you know, really critical cases. And we've, all, by the way, all us and dietitians have worked for at least two years in, in the hospital, mostly in ICU. So calories matter when you're getting fed through a tube and we're trying to keep people like alive, not like for, for me. So, um, you know, we, we try to really like show and convince people with, with, we blind them with science that this is a fool's errand and it's not making you happy. And you're becoming obsessed with the, the unit rather than, the overarching, what are you eating? Why are you eating it? How much are you eating? When are you eating it? With whom? Why? You know, the more, the more subjective reasons we eat, which is the human reasons we eat. So I always tell people like, 
you know, I have this, this adorable Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. She gets a half cup of food every single day. I actually didn't have an Instagram post about this. It's like, she eats a half cup of food every single day. And she is a dog. You are not a dog. You know, you are uniquely human and you get to choose your foods. You, you should not choose them based on calories. You should choose them based on nourishment and pursuit of health and pleasure. And because you're a human being and that's amazing. So, you know, the calorie is just completely irrelevant to most of us. It does not have a place for us. It drives diet culture and dieting, which makes metabolic issues even worse, not to mention mental health issues surrounding food. It completely mars and entangles your relationship with food, your, your intuitive eating signals, your hunger and fullness signals. And it's just, it, it's a complete demon is what it is. So unless it's a dire situation or you're a, a an elite athlete or there's a specific uh, malady that you're dealing with, calories should not even be on your radar. That's, yep, that's accurate. Perfect. And what about supplements? Because I remember when I was in school, my biochemistry professor basically summed up supplements saying supplements just create very expensive pee, that supplements aren't even okay. really regulated by the FDA. And so supplements are not a substitute for whole foods, obviously. And I just think it's tricky because as we live in the time of, of Soylent and all of these different supplements that are at mm. our fingertips, it's, it's very easy to fall into a rhythm of, okay, I can maybe, you know, eat this that I know isn't ideal for me as long as I take this multivitamin or B12 or whatever it is that's in vogue that day. So do you, for your clients, do you suggest them take supplements or what is your view on supplements? So they're meant to be supplementary to one's intake. And I'm happy they exist because there are people for, for whom they are required. Um, based on your registered dietitian or physician or PA or you know nurse practitioners, risk benefit analysis and macro analysis of what is going on. So individually, we are very conservative with supplements because we believe that food can be first and food can really give most of the population everything they need. Now that said, I'm taking a, a prenatal vitamin because I'm nursing. There is great data. And I believe that I should be doing this just to kind of cover my bases. You know, I, I actually have some qualms about people like me who eat like psychopaths, like need really truly needing prenatals, but most of us really should be taking prenatals if you're nursing or are pregnant. Now we do recommend supplements. If there is a documented extreme need or risk for deficiency based on our scientific analysis. It's not just, oh, your vitamin D level is low. Here's a supplement. It's, mm -hmm. well, wait, why is it low to begin with? How long has it been low? If we give you a supplement, why are we doing that? Why are we not just encouraging high intake of vitamin D foods? Are you getting enough sun? Do you have an autoimmune disease? Are you, you know, it, what's going on with your bones? Cause that's, you know, in, involved or your mental health also involved with vitamin D, your immunity. Okay. If we give you a supplement, how much for how long, what, what are we going to measure it again? How long are we going to keep you on this supplement? So there's a lot of questions before you just, you know, make it rain Skittles all over the place with pills. Um, and there are, there is a time and a place, like I said, for, for documented deficiency, or, you know, we have clinically evaluated that there is a risk of deficiency or a, or nutrient risk, and it is not going to be attainable by, by, from, from food for AEVC reason, and then they are appropriate. But in, like I said, in most cases they are not. Right. So before running to the GNC, maybe get some blood work first and actually see what your body needs. 100%. Well, I hope people do heed this advice because I get sad when I just see companies looking 
to sell you whatever it is without actually caring what you're putting into your body and people can really hurt themselves. So I think it's, it's valuable. really sad. I, I was talking, I did a whole podcast on supplements the other day and I kind of wish that like pharmacists had to, like there had to be a prescription for supplements. And then again, mm. I was like, eh, that would prevent such access to care. You know, we already have such bad accessibility to healthcare, but like consumers really shouldn't be allowed to just like decide <laughs> pills, you know, into their body. You know, it's, it's, I, I wish there was more, I guess, oversight regulation and, and gatekeeping to any kind of pill that goes into your body. Of course. And I mean, I mean, I think it's fair to say that so much of food and health is, is policy and, and regulation, but I just agree with you that at least the people with all is political, I always say <laughs> it's true. It's true. And at the very minimum, with all due respect to people who work at, you know, CVS, GNC, the vitamin shop or whatever, don't really know what they're prescribing into whom. And again, can, can cause harm. And so, you know, buyer beware, yeah. but buyer be very aware. But 1000%. And like I said, I'm glad that we have, you know, supplementation. I'm it's like anything, it is a double edged sword and water can hydrate you or kill you. So there's that. <laughs> but so there's so much for someone to take into consideration. And there are only so many hours in a day. And before I let you go, I really do want to get your opinion on what the heck is intuitive eating? Because I have heard this now so often, but I feel like people are still very confused. And I think learning how to best support yourself does lend itself to this notion of intuitive eating. But what exactly does it mean? Right. So intuitive eating is a book by Evelyn Trivoli and Elise Resch, actually from the 90s that now has been revived and, and redone a couple times. A new edition just came out and there are 10 principles. But what it really uh, boils down to is that we're all born intuitive eaters, meaning that we know when we're hungry and we know when we're full and we know we, when we need vegetables and we know when we need Nutella. And diet culture and so many external sources have marred our internal, beautiful, nuanced, blissful uh, uh, thermometer that tells us who, what, where, when, why, how much to eat. Okay. But there's a way to get that back. The problem is it's, it's quite nuanced and it takes a lot of practice. So it's not a diet and people really want diets and they want something simple and they want something very concrete and intuitive eating is neither this nor that. So it essentially is learning. So it's like a language and it takes a process and a commitment, but it's the last you know, quote diet you'll ever be on because it's, it's the end of the road because it's, it, it brings you back to where you were innately and originally, um, it teaches you to eat for health and to move for health and to treat food with respect and reverence and awe and joy. Um, but also to eat, you know, for, for funsies. Um, and it, it, it teaches you to honor your body, honoring your fullness, honoring your hunger, honoring health, honoring your abilities, honoring your inabilities and honoring your true, true, true intuitive needs. So if you've ever, you know, been with a baby or a child that's eating and that's not given any cues by the parents, you know, they are just enjoying the food with absolute gusto. So mindfully enjoying every sight, smell, savor, sound, laughing. It's going everywhere. They're eating. And then the minute they're done, they throw it on the floor. They're done. Good day. Thank you so much. And that is a really great example of intuitive and, and intuitive eating mindful is uh, intuitive eating's best friend, which is mindful eating. So it's it's kind of hard to explain 
explain in these like rational scientific terms that, oh, do this, not that. Um, the there are, that's why we have those 10 principles. But, you know, if you start reading the book or listening to the podcast and you get it after a couple of weeks and then after a couple of months, and then it just like, it's like, how did I ever live not like this? Because I used to not, and now I do. And it's like, this is the most liberating thing in the world. And it ultimately is health enhancing. That's the crazy thing. We now have literature and science that backs up and that says we're seeing better biochemical data, better serum lab markers, better health outcomes with intuitive eating versus diets. So booyakasha. And I think that's actually the most important thing to take into consideration when talking about the intersection between food and mental health, because your body, I, I at least firmly believe that your body is going to be most receptive to what you get the most joy out of. Obviously there's moderation to take into consideration, but if you're eating mindfully, like you said, and thoroughly enjoying that delicious decadent piece of chocolate cake filled with butter and gluten and whatever it may be, as long as it's not every night, your body is going to get so much joy and that's going to do wonders for you. And I think that's an aspect of mental health maintenance that people are maybe uncomfortable with just because we're taught to steer clear of anything that, you know, is covered in frosting. And so I think that more people like yourself and more professionals and more experts should be encouraging us that, you know, learn to listen to your body, learn to listen what it likes, enjoy it. Like you said, live life with gusto and guilty pleasures shouldn't be guilty. They're just your pleasures and living a life full of pleasure is an awesome thing as long as you're doing it mindfully. And, you know, leading a healthy life is not about just consuming green juice all day, like Instagram wants you to believe, but a huge part of honoring our mental health is, is being happy while we're eating and being happy about what we're eating. So just finding that, that balance. And I am so appreciative to you that, that you espouse that and, and that's on your social media and you tell your clients that, because I think that is so, so, so important. So finally, for you personally, if you're comfortable sharing, what is achieving mental health for you? So I think that, you know, and I, the I quote ideal mental health is different for everybody. Um, I think the ideal health, you know, state is different for everybody. For me, I think the ideal mental health state would be would be getting to a place of more balance because naturally I'm an I'm a hyper doer and I want I, I'm very intense when I work and then when I do anything and I have very high energy and and that leads to a lot of that can lead to panic and anxiety um and 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 I suffer and have struggled with that so to slow myself down and be more mindful I'm a great mindful eater I'm, I'm not a mindful human I'm working on more mindfulness and appreciating and paying attention to my surroundings and slowing down, which is really hard for me. Um, but I think that, yeah, that's my, that's my ideal mental health state is being in a place of balance where I have time and I feel like I have time and I feel calm and not rushed and not constantly on edge. And I have to be doing something that I'm okay, not doing something. So that's your answer. Well, thank you so much for your time, for your expertise, for your wisdom, for everything that you are. And until next time. 
Thank you so much for having me, you brilliant, brilliant colleague of mine. And I am so appreciative that we work together and that you've selected me for this podcast and to be your colleague in so many of our professional endeavors. Oh, thank you so much. All right. I'll talk to you later. Toodles. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Monica. If you'd like to learn more about her or her private practice, please find information in the description box of this podcast episode. All right, until next time.